1: leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories.
0: Dr. Deborah Netalicki has had 20 years of experience in teaching and school leadership in England and Australia. She is currently the head of teaching and learning at St. Mark's Anglican Community School. She's an honorary research associate at Murdoch University, the deputy chair of the Carrying Up Primary School Board, and she's involved in a whole bunch of education advisory committees all over the place. She's a really important voice in what's happening in professional learning and teacher education in Australia. She's a pracademic and we're gonna talk about that in a wee while. We're really keen and excited to talk with her. Let's go.
1: Well, Phil, it's great to be with you as, uh, as well again. I hope uh, everything's going well there in, in uh, Hipsterville Villa Fitzroy. And, oh, and Deb?
0: Oh, look, uh, look, you know, we're, we're just keeping the haircuts sharp and we're, uh, we're keeping our milk, um, uh, soy and uh, gluten- Almond.
1: Fruit. So you're responsible for getting all the almond milk off the shelves. Okay, That's me, yep. Sorry, Deb, we, we've digressed into some nonsense between us. But, Deb, thank you very much for joining us. And I, thought, I think we're just launching into the very, very first question. And that is one that expands a little bit on that bio that Phil has just shared with our listeners, such an extensive and rich uh, experience within the educational space, both from a research point of view and also a practical point of view. So just, I suppose the most logical thing then is to ask you to tell us a little bit about your story and kind of what has brought you to where you are today.
2: Okay. Thanks, Adriano. Thanks, Phil, for the introduction. Uh, I'm really just a teacher uh, by trade. I've been a teacher for more than 20 years now of, of English and of literature uh, and in a, in a past life of art as well. Uh, and since my second or third year of teaching, I've been in school leadership. So I've led faculties and strategic projects and most recently uh, pedagogy and teaching and learning in schools and staff development. So, uh, you know, it's really teaching and, and leading in schools, particularly the things that are about making schools better, making teaching better, for uh, in, improving student outcomes and improving the experience for uh, all people in our school community is really what kind of gets me out of bed in the morning. And that's probably why I've done things like uh, PhD and written and edited books in my spare time, because uh, those are the things that I really feel can make a contribution to what I really see as kind of the global narrative of education, where we're all learning from one another uh, and where research learns from practice, uh, practice learns from research and um, we're all kind of, as people are saying uh, at the moment, in this together.
1: It's a, it's an unimaginable time that we find ourselves in. I mean, uh, for, for us, or many of us who have never experienced the the trauma of war and, and that kind of loss or despair or that the uncertainty, I know I, I speak to my mother. Well, my mother was, was born in, in Austria um, and she's Viennese and she grew up in the Second World War. And I know that this time that we're experiencing right now has actually triggered some emotions in her around what she used to experience back then. And so for, for many of us, this generation, this is so new and so foreign. And no, no wonder there, there are people who are just kind of scrambling to, to hold on to create learning communities that are some type of resemblance of a, of a school. And and I applaud them for that. So I suppose that leads into my next question. The late American economist Milton Freeman once said, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are are taken depend on the ideas that are laying around. So I'm interested from your perspective, Deb, what are the ideas that you believe are kind of laying around that could really take hold post-pandemic in education?
2: Well I guess I'm thinking about that statement about the ideas that are laying around because certainly my current experience of teaching and and leading teaching in a pandemic is that we're kind of not picking up ideas that are laying around we're kind of finding ideas in the air as we run at pace (laughs) through a storm. Uh, So uh, I certainly think that there's some I mean, the sorts of ideas that I'm seeing coming up at the moment are to do with what does testing and assessment look like and why, really thinking about purpose, what's important in learning, what's important in teaching, what's the purpose of schooling, uh, how do we, how do we gather evidence of, of what a student has learned and what does that need to look like? And I think the one thing that this crisis is disrupting for us is actually what's the point of school? And there's all kinds of things from, well, the point of school actually seems to be about connectivity, relationality, intimacy, community. Uh, That's certainly what myself and my students are really missing uh, and even, and staff. But then you've got Uh, Just I think all those things that futurists have been telling us for some time about, you know, abolishing standardised testing, abolishing university entrance exams, rethinking the school day, uh, rethinking uh, the ways in which we um, organise students, all of those things are being redesigned on the fly. And I think we will come out of this with some of those uh, different solutions for doing things and decide that we want to keep those in whatever the, the future normal will be.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're spot on there, you know, Deb, around what, what it's highlighting for me profoundly and even particularly to, to the schools that I'm currently supporting, you know, through this particular process or crisis, whichever way you want to phrase it, um, and even friends who have got children, is that the, the, the one constant and the greatest strength of schools is, is the relationship between that teacher and that student. And co- connectivity, as you say, the relational, and of course this sense of community. You know, they're important social constructs, and there's an exchange of ideas uh, that happen every day, whether they're uh, directly or indirectly. That happen, you know, in a school, whether it's in a yard, an incidental conversation. You know, that 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 moment where you know there's a student in your class that needs that extra hello, you know, that special hello, because mm-hmm. normally, you know, they're not gonna they're not gonna pipe up, but you know something's going on, and you need that. And it's really difficult to do that. On a screen, when you've got thirty faces staring at you and responding, so there's so much that's inherently wonderful about learning communities that I feel that this crisis is highlighting that we don't want to lose. Mm. But, but rightfully you point out there are things like what do we measure, and even there's a whole conversation now around well, what's the meaning of attendance, you know, and time.
2: Yeah, so we're Uh, looking at things like, well, how do we track, we're not measuring attendance, we're not taking attendance, but we're looking at, well, how do we track engagement? What does engagement look like? And how do we know that a student is engaging? And students are engaging differently with what might be a remote or a distance or an online kind of um, platform or ways of learning and engaging with one another. So is it, you know, likes on posts in Teams? Is it attendance at video meetings? Is it... uh, you know, contributions to discussion boards? Is it emails and sending of, of questions and drafts of work? And so how do we uh, then check in on um, those people that perhaps aren't engaging and how do we know? And as you say, without looking around the room and, and looking people in the eye and, and getting a sense of where they're at, uh, which you can do in a classroom, It's it, it's there's some interesting challenges.
1: You know, you touched upon before that particular futurists in education are predicting kind of doing schooling differently, Yeah. And one of the things that they often speak about is this desire to shift away from purely lecture-based learning that goes on in some contexts of schools, where students are seen to be just simply consumers of information. Now, my personal experience, and, and yours might be similar, Deb, because being visual arts teachers, that's just not how we would deliver a lesson. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in fact, I see such great practitioners out there not delivering lessons in that lecture style or having for a very long time. It might be a 10 minute kind of you know, prologue at the beginning, but there's a lot of uh, co-constructing going on in, in schools today. Having said that, there are still some people that are wedded to this kind of formulaic rose and talking at them approach. How would you go about supporting educators in developing a kind of another bow to their armoury around meaningful learning approaches?
2: Uh, I think some of the things that really work are to do with collaboration with one another. So things like lesson study, instructional rounds, uh, observing one another's lessons. I think one of the things that really changes people's practice is Um, And some people have called it, you know, being like a bow bird or someone that goes and sort of cherry picks. Oh, I'll try that in my lesson tomorrow. Uh, And certainly I've done lots of work as a coach of classroom teachers. And really, when I've worked with classroom kind of instructional coaches or cognitive coaches, what they've said is uh, the the person doing the best learning often is the person who's in the room observing. So seeing one another and working alongside one another uh, is one way to go. Uh, And then, I mean, there's lots of ways to develop practice but I think in a school situation that kind of job embedded ongoing learning that is aligned with a school vision uh, where we're all kind of having a shared language of, of what good teaching and learning looks like in this place uh, and we're all working towards that together whether that's through some targeted professional learning whether that's through collaboration with one another and using the expertise within our school uh, that's i think how we can really move things forward um, probably much more so than individuals going off and, and trying things in a vacuum mm. by themselves
1: i think there's something really powerful that, that you talked there about the the collective efficacy that that we really need uh, to go forward. But I'm going to hand it over now to Phil, I believe.
0: Yes, indeed, Deb. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the experiences that you're having at the chalk Chalkface uh, in professional learning. One of the things that we've, we've set out to do, this is our second series um, now. In our first series, we posited the notion that the model is broken. And some people um, uh, interpreted us as saying that teachers were broken. We don't think teachers are broken at all. We think teachers are doing an amazing job, and they have been doing an amazing job All over the world but the model in which they have been operating isn't working and we're in the process of reinvention now if we flip to the specific area of professional learning what's the model that works in professional how do we transform teachers in their capacity to influence the lives the character the competency the wellness the confidence of their students
2: when i talk about transformational professional learning what i'm kind of talking about is that those experiences that are going to shape the beliefs and the behaviours and practices of teachers. So not just, um, you know, something that you can chalk up some hours in your uh, teacher registration book for, uh, you went on a course or um, did something, but actually what is it that changes what we believe and what we do? And sometimes we do it and then that changes our beliefs and sometimes we have a bit of an aha moment in terms of our beliefs and then we consequently change our practice. And there's plenty of research around those kinds of things. Uh, the learning that's most likely to be transformational is has a balance of high support and high challenge so there's high care but there's also kind of a high level of 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 challenge and and um i guess something to get our heads around Uh, it's targeted it's ongoing it's it's differentiated there's a sense of um there's voice and choice for the educator and within a school environment it's really linked to doing the right thing for our context and knowing our people
0: so deb if i if i can take you to the absolute practicalities of it because Mm. There's the theory and then there's the practice. And we're going mm. to come back to you as a pracademic in a moment mm. and what that actually means and, 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 and the competencies associated with that. But if we've got high challenge and high care, how do we provide the time for people when they need it, when we have systems that are designed to prevent us from giving people the time they need to grow professionally?
2: And that is one thing that always comes up, that teachers need the time and the support. If we're going to learn, grow, develop and improve, then that needs to be something that's resourced with time and money and resources. And so I think that's a a perennial challenge. If I think back to the Gonski 2.0 report, Uh, they talked about the fact that, you know, teachers have a lot of administrative work and, and duties and other things that creep into their Um, their working hours and that some of those things need to be taken off teachers' plates so that they can um, put things like meaningful professional learning and collaboration on. And um, I always come back to Dylan Williams' uh, line where he talks about sometimes we need to stop teachers doing good things in order to do even better things. So the idea that there's nothing teachers are doing that isn't good that we should toss out because it's no good, but actually that... um, what we want is for teachers to go, what's, what's really a priority here that's going to really make a difference for our students and our school and our community? And then what do we need to take away for that to happen? And I think that's really a challenge in terms of schools being able to do that.
0: So if I can, if I can link some of your responses there, because I think mm-hmm. they're really, really important. And There's a lot of wisdom that you're talking about. If we're going to transform teachers, we have to transform their beliefs about themselves to start with. Yep. Consistently when I go to schools, I identify, you know, I can identify um, those teachers who believe they have the capacity and the authority to make decisions about what's important and do it, and those who just don't believe they can, they feel trapped inside a system. How do we help transform teachers to believe in their capacity to make choices about what's important and not fear the consequences. Are this, you know, this is this is um, this is Adriano's concept. Really, this is the permission stuff. How do we help teachers to permission themselves?
2: So I think there's the permission, which to some extent comes from, you know, school leadership. Uh, you know, a really clear vision and clear support for teachers, and and encouraging and supporting that professional judgment, risk taking, and again that environment of high care and high challenge, where there's uh, Ellie drago severson talks about this. Um, theory in psychology called the holding environment, which is where someone feels kind of held almost like a child would with their parent, but also challenged to be the best that they can be. So one thing that I found in both my own practice, as well as my research and, and the research of others that I think is really about building that self-efficacy and that agency of teachers to, to trust themselves uh, and to develop themselves is coaching. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, research-based professional learning model. Uh, But coaching is really something that is about taking that person, that teacher or or that school leader, whoever it might be from where they currently are to where they want to be. So I think the thing about coaching rather than mentoring, which is more about your kind of master protege relationship is that the coach is really a vehicle or a conduit for helping that person uh, to get to where they would like to be. And it's about building their self-efficacy so that they are, um, yeah, masters of their own development and their own improvement. So that would be um, a real place that I would look if that was something that I would, was aiming to build in my school or my system.
1: Permissions are a powerful, powerful thing, and I've often found in the privilege that I've had over the years, Deb, as as a leader within a number of different schools here in Melbourne. In the absence of permission, you get a lot of compliance and resentment. You know, not necessarily in equal parts, but And there are other things, of course, that come in play. And I I learned very quickly that it's really important that leaders within school communities are enablers of every learner in that community, particularly the adults who are the most valuable asset that we have in schools who bring so much uh, knowledge and gifts every day. What I also found was that through a really good coaching model that you've just advocated for there, and I'm a huge fan of, is that it's amazing where the adults, when you see an adult have those aha moments, mm. you know, that they, they actually go, hold on. That's my See, I belong here. Yeah, yeah, I, I belong here. I can, I can really do this. So I want to I explore that a little bit further. A moment ago, we also touched upon that the heart of education is the relationship between, you know, the, the, the teacher and, and, and the learner. Everything else kind of should be focused on making that the best kind of relationship possible. So in a really good coaching model, how can we continue to build the teacher's capacity around their ability to form strong relationships, not only with uh, their students, but with their peers?
2: Well, I think a coaching model isn't a, a silver bullet that occurs in a vacuum on its own as well. I think it's part of a, a wider school culture uh, and, a, and a collaborative culture or what um, Andy Hargraves and Michael O'Connor might call uh, collaborative professionalism. But so that, culture where, um, you know, and I've talked a bit about this before in terms of that collaboration isn't about we're all in a room together um, or we're all having a great time together. It's actually around, um, and I think it comes with that culture of permission, but a culture of permission also needs to come with good collaboration, which has, you know, norms and protocols, which has um, you know, that you're examining data and that you're having robust discussion and you're okay with challenging one another. So respectfully disagreeing. Uh, and I think if you've got that kind of a culture where you're, you're willing to kind of take risks and be open, because I've when you're developing a, co- a coaching culture in a school, what can happen is that people allow themselves to be coached on lessons that they think are perfect, not on lessons where they think there might be something for them to work on. Uh, So you need to be really open to being kind of vulnerable. And again, coming back to that culture of how um, cared for, protected and supported do people feel so that they can then challenge themselves. So I think that culture of kind of collaboration, leadership, uh, and permission to do all kinds of things is important. Uh, And the other thing, as you were talking, that I was thinking of um, in our current situation in terms of permission is that this current crisis, this pandemic is almost in some ways giving teachers and schools permission to do things differently. And yet, there are people who are sort of still wedded to their compliance. They still yeah. want to be told what to do. And when someone says, use your professional judgment, do something different, give it a go, see what works, what's going to work now isn't what worked three weeks ago. Uh, pe- some people are really struggling with that permission because perhaps they don't have the efficacy the agency and the, the kind of trust in their own professional judgment to just give something a go.
1: And, and in, some, in some ways, some of them, some of us, I know I was in, in my former years of coaching, I was kind of hardwired to a particular system or a way of thinking that I didn't feel that I had that permission or my voice was valued. And so then I kind of conditioned, I suppose I felt conditioned over a period of time to say nothing or do nothing. And I just went along with it. So then when I was required to think for myself, it was
2: difficult. And I think you know, being, being asked to think about things differently and to come up with new ways of doing things essentially almost on the spot as some, as schools and teachers are at the moment, in, depending on what your current infrastructure was, is deeply uncomfortable. And if we're yeah. talking about transformational professional learning, like this, this time is a time when teachers are being deeply transformed in terms of their practices and then probably their beliefs, because we might come out the other side and realize that, Hey, um, I haven't done it this way. I'd never thought to do it this way, but now I've done it and, and we see the, the potentially positive effects of that or negative, which we can e- equally learn from.
1: I want to I just shift now the conversation a little bit to uh, last year, towards the end of last year, the Grattan Institute put out a report on teachers, and you might be familiar with that particular report, where they were advocating for uh, new roles in, in education where there was this kind of tiered system, basically. That's what they were talking about, where there was your general practitioner and then you had instructional specialists and you had master teachers. And, of course, those instructional specialists were to be paid $40,000 more than your higher standard pay teacher. And then there was $80,000 more for the higher standard for the master teacher. Interesting concept. I, I only interpret that as performance pay, but perhaps others might not have. And the other interesting concept to that is that the master teacher would never be in the classroom. Their sole role based on their model would be supporting uh, and mentoring other teachers around their pedagogical practice. What are your thoughts on that perspective?
2: Well, I guess there's two streams. One is whether something is performance pay because pay based on performance as in, um, you know, achieving particular success indicators, for instance, or test results or so on, uh, is something that I advocate against. So that's something that I've done some research into and and, uh, is, I think, something that's divisive and corrosive rather than um, what we really want our profession to be, which is collaborative and, um, you know, working together for the greater good of our, our students and our communities. Uh, but I think what they seem to be talking about in that report in terms of the master teacher is what you might call an instructional coach. So someone who is an expert in uh, teaching practice in a particular way and therefore mentors uh, or coaches in a kind of instructional coaching model, um, like Jim Knight's model. Um, mm-hmm teachers to um, to improve their practice. I do think it's interesting that often really good teachers are, um, I would see that as a leadership position. Uh, so often really good teachers are promoted out of the classroom. And if I think about that uh, as a leadership role, really, there's good and bad things about that. It's great to have good teachers in the classroom, but it's also that as people move up um, or through schools or through systems into leadership roles, I guess you're positive influence on students is less direct but more and more diluted but also broader
0: yeah so, so deb that's a that's a really interesting um perspective again because you you you, you know it's, it's the importance between having a foot in the classroom when you're in a leadership position and not and and, and bridging both worlds this brings us to the notion of a pracademic Mm-hmm. And and somebody who is able to bridge theory and practice. And so on. Mm-hmm. tell us about a pracademic. Tell us why you're a pracademic. Tell us, why, tell us why it's important for more of us in the profession to be pracademics.
2: So pracademia is really about that notion of being a bridge, I guess, between research and practice and having a foot in both camps um, and I think pracademics can come from both ends. So You can come from the scholarship academy end, and there are a lot of, of academics and researchers who work really closely with and in schools who I would consider to be pracademics. And then you've got the kind of practice end of pracademia, which is those of us working in schools who also have um, a foot in the kind of academic and scholarship world. And I think that often scholarship is, and practice are kind of, pitted against one another almost they absolutely shouldn't be but sometimes you know people might say that you know academics are doing their research but are out of touch with schools and schools might and academics might say well schools aren't reading the research they need to be you know hooked in with uh, what research tells us is most likely to work and informed by research and data and there are some some people who say that teachers should be doing their own research action research and you've got others who might say uh, that you know teachers can't and shouldn't be researchers so for me it's really about well you know, multiple stakeholders and even not just research and practice, but if you add in policy in there uh, and other stakeholders, for me, it's about multiple stakeholders working together, but that even as an individual, you can be someone who is a bridge between those spaces and able to kind of feed both ways. And, and, And that's
0: really important, isn't it? Because, you know, if I take one of the things that you were talking about earlier, which is the notion of performance pay, intuitively, if you come from a particular perspective you might feel as though that performance pay might actually work. However, there's no piece of research that justifies the use of performance pay in any educational context. It just doesn't work. And it has all sorts of negative impacts and so on as you've explained. So if you're not across the research, you can actually end up doing more harm than good, even though you've got good intentions around all, all, all you know, all, all sorts of things. So, Based on that, and, and if, I, if, I, if I look at your um, career, um, it's exhausting to keep up with <laughs> your capacity to produce high quality yeah. uh, 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 content that is informed by research. You're researching yourself. You blog at the That's the You tweet as at as, as DebsNet at DebsNet, you're the author of Transformational Professional Learning, Making a Difference in School, you've co-edited Flip the the System Australia, What Matters in Education. What does matter in education? If, if, you know, this this is your 30 seconds, you've got a new minister for education in front of you, you've got an attention span of not that long before something else is calling, what are the things that matter? Of the minister, not of Deb. No, 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 of course, of course, not of you, Deb.
2: No, so I'm in the elevator with the minister and I've got one and a half minutes till we get to the next floor. That's it, Um, what matters. Yeah, so I think partly it's acknowledging the complexity and humanity of education. Uh, And we say in Flip the System Australia that education is a human endeavour. It's not about algorithms and it's not about scores and it's not about quantifying everything. Uh, So acknowledging that complexity, uh, trusting teacher professional judgment and teacher voice, but marrying that with research and partnerships with scholars and so on. Uh, Because for me, as you were saying, Phil, um, really, like teachers, lived experiences of the classroom, knowing their own students, their own school context, that is absolutely key to the decisions that we make in education. But uh, that should be tempered with an understanding of uh, what research has found. And so it's really about making better decisions uh, from the policy room to the boardroom to the classroom based on a kind of marrying together of praxis, so the wisdom of praxis, practice and an understanding of the context of that particular nation, system, school, uh, and also a knowledge of what research literature says is most likely to work based on, on what is currently known at any given time.
0: So if it's not all about algorithms and it's not all about numbers, where do the numbers fit in? What is their useful role in helping us to determine what matters?
2: Well, when we're looking to research, we're looking for, well, what's the best available evidence to help inform our decisions in practice? And so the the point of numbers is to think about, well, what does this tell us, this piece of research, this... um, randomised control trial, this meta-analysis, because all research can tell us something. So it's about understanding and being able to ask the right questions of research and saying, well, what does this tell us? And also knowing what the limitations are, what doesn't it tell us? And what, how might we fill the gaps and apply that to our own context and our own students, classrooms, schools, countries, in ways that are going to have the best outcomes for them?
0: So it's about a narrative as much as anything and working out what a growth narrative is. Um, might mean within the narrative of your own work what's something that you've tried that you'd never do again
2: <laughs> oh I don't know if there, I don't know if there's anything I've tried that it was a an abject failure certainly uh within the narrative of my own work everything that I do has been uh iterative so there's always a refinement there's always an improvement there's always generating kind of data and and feedback that's as honest that as I can get to to um to, to try and improve from where I'm at, uh, I'm trying to think of an example of something that was kind of an abject failure. I do think, if I think back on when I implemented a, a coaching model at a school uh, and, if, and we moved from volunteers to a mandated model, and I think there was lots of good things about that, but since that, uh, that time I've been challenged on whether you should ever compulsorily opt someone into something like a coaching model or or if that should always be about voluntary involvement only so that's that's something that goes around in my head in terms of that navigating of accountability versus uh sort of voice choice and autonomy of the person who's doing the learning
0: it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting challenge around that one of, of of voice and choice and 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 you know we've seen in 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 a whole bunch of schools great ideas fall apart i've got and I can, I can tell you from my own career as a leader in schools, you know, where he came up with some absolutely cracking ideas and we mandated them and we, disres- <laughs> we disrespected the, um, the, the professionalism and the, and the autonomy of our colleagues and they let us know it. And, um, and what we were trying to do didn't work. It's always a challenge for school leaders around that about how do we get people who just don't want to move? To get moving and to get moving with us and to understand that we're with them along the way. If you were talking to a young educational leader just stepped into their first head of department or their or their first head of year role, their first significant role in managing adults and and they come to you after their first meeting and it's clear that there's one or two members of staff who just don't want to move, what sort of advice could you give them about helping that person to, to to move along with us, to swim to swim to swim the stream with us?
2: Well I think one thing I've I've learned since I was a, a younger leader to now a, a I'll call myself mid career leader, um, is that I like to engage people who aren't engaging. So for me, those dissenting voices, those those people on my team who are the ones who are telling me that they think it's a terrible idea and they don't want to be involved or they're avoiding it, those are the people that I actually Really want to talk to. Um, I did have a leader tell me once, um, you know, the water the plants don't water the rocks. So it was that idea, you know, go with your early adopters, go with your enthusiasts, and and don't worry about those people who don't want to come with you. But actually, what I found in my leadership journey is that uh, if I find those people who who really don't want to move, then I'll go to them and I'll say, you know tell me why like this what what is it about this can you be involved with me in making this meaningful for for you and for someone like you how can we work together to this isn't meant to be a process that is a ticker box process this is something I want everyone to be involved in if you have some criticisms of that or some ideas about how we can make it better then um, then you know come on board and, and and let's work that out together so that's Uh, probably where I've ended up with at the moment in terms of working with those people who seem like they don't want to move is that actually they have um, a lot to offer in terms of helping us to make what we're doing better.
1: Yeah, I think you're right there, Deb. Everyone in in all the learning communities have a contribution and just sometimes we need to find ways in which to allow them the space and time to share what that is. Some of them don't even know what that is yet, you know, and, and they might just need some gentle encouragement or highlighting something that has worked that could easily be shared with others, uh, I've often found that the vast majority will always come to the party then if you take this kind of personal approach that you're advocating there for, one that's centred around trust and, and and the humanity of what we do.
2: And I think uh, it's, also, it's also about seeking to understand rather than dismissing something because it's a negative viewpoint.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. I want to now talk a little bit around... You touched upon before that part of this idea of transformational professional learning is around a collective efficacy. And, you know, we're we're so much better together moving along a particular continuum going forward. Google have a a framework that they use for uh, the formation of their teams. Because you even mentioned a moment ago, there's got to be certain protocols around how we we go about it. So these are their five um, protocols. Number five is impact that team members think that their work matters and it can create change. So that's really in some ways around them feeling valued. The fourth is meaning that the work is personally important to those team members. The third is structure and clarity so that team members understand that what their roles are and their parameters. The second is dependability that each member can rely upon the other to meet the deadlines that are set. And the number one Google uh, rule they have for, or guideline they have for, for effective teams is psychological safety. But team members can feel safe to take risks and be vulnerable in front of each other. Can you talk a little bit around your perspective of what I've just shared there? Because you've written pieces around, having teams that have a capacity to have robust conversations to have a discourse that is about the work and that is not of the person uh, to be really effective and obviously there's lots of things that have to be built around that but can you talk a little bit further around that
2: yes i think that psychological safety piece comes back to that high care high challenge and that holding environment Uh, and the other thing that you mentioned that i thought was quite interesting was Uh, what i think you called it dependability but what i might call peer accountability because i think when you have those norms or those agreements where you decide and agree that as a team this is how we will operate this is how we will this is how we'll be honest and open with each other how we'll respectfully disagree but when we walk out of the room we're speaking with one voice we will have come to a consensus whatever those things might be if if it's not just, for instance, the chair, but everyone that's holding one another accountable for those agreements that everyone is clear about and revisits, uh, then I think you can start to get that, um, that safety and that trust. But people need to know that that is a safe space to work and to talk and that it won't be undermined either in the meeting itself or once you leave the room. Uh, Because if that's happening, but from either the people in the more senior roles or from, or from colleagues, then you're not going to get that top one, which is that psychological safety uh, and that culture of trust.
0: Deborah, one of the things that we hear teachers who feel alienated from what is going on, talk about frequently, is that they feel that they are in a culture of fear and a place where no trust exists. Part of the challenge quite often for school leaders is that they will walk into an environment where whatever it was that caused that atmosphere of mistrust, that poison to come into culture that affects um, teachers uh, and their feeling about, about what is going on, that could be decades old. How do we help school leaders build trust?
2: I think, I mean, there's a kind of really obvious and simple answer that actually isn't that simple. And that is what most leaders would say they would do in a new leadership role, which is I'm going to go in and listen. Um, But real listening to seek to understand and to get a sense of context and to uh, allow people to feel like as as they're being listened to and heard, that that's being taken seriously, being taken on board, uh, and and I suppose that's a slow process as well. That I mean, that idea of actually really active listening is is really important, and then and then acting on that, the things that you might then know, uh, so that you're honouring the things that you're hearing uh, is one way to go about that. But yeah, building a culture of of trust is about it can be about changing language it can be about changing the kinds of things that you measure in terms of um if you we're talking about a, a sort of school culture a staff culture well, what are the how punitive are we how Um, how tightly do we hold people accountable and and to what do people feel like they are being you know watched because they're being surveilled and it's going to be held against them later or do they feel like there's a kind of open culture of you know looking at each other's lessons because we want to get better and we want to have robust and interesting and energizing professional conversations Uh, so I think a lot of it is about about shaping language, about how we do things around here, how we talk about things around here, and then also what are the actions of the leadership team in terms of what then happens with the information that they get. Do teachers feel like if they're giving up information or if they're being um, observed, for instance, that that's going to be held against them at a later date or used on their performance review? uh, Or do they feel like they are not just trusted to do their job, but uh, sort of recognised and celebrated and and supported to get better without it being about a punitive um, accountability checkbox ticking kind of exercise?
1: So, Deb, if there were three things that you could advise school leaders around in building the efficacy and the growth of their staff to meet the needs of the 21st century student or maybe even now the 22nd century yes, student. Yes, I think
2: we should probably move forward from 21st century. Yeah,
1: <laughs> we've been in it for a while. So let's go Let's go about, I'll rephrase that by saying that the effective growth in the educators for the needs of the 22nd century student. What would, that, what would that three bits of advice look like when it comes to the theme of transformational professional learning?
2: know your context so for instance if you're a new leader you need to know that context first you need to know your people both your staff your students your families Uh, and so knowing that really deeply before you come in and try to um, add something into that context there's no one size fits all there's no no matter how much research you you read and understand there's no way to come in and say well this worked here therefore it will work there. Uh, so, I think con- knowing context is is one thing and that comes partly with things like listening uh, and getting out of your office, walking around into classrooms out of interest, not just um, because, you know, you've got a performance review on your desk that you need to complete. Uh, thinking about the kinds of collaboration that you can encourage. So uh, do you have or could you develop professional learning communities or project groups or groups of teachers, instructional rounds, whatever that might be within your school? Are your teachers kind of collaborating? Do you have things like coaching and mentoring? I've mentioned coaching before because I just think it's such a powerful tool, but that could sit in your collaboration toolbox as well. And then I think the other thing is thinking about time and resources. So how are you supporting teachers to And differentiating for teachers needs different career stages ages interests aspirations how are you um, sort of allowing the time and the resourcing and the support to help each and every person on your staff to kind of reach their their particular goals do you have a goal setting uh, kind of structure and and process and do you are you able to then um, put the time and effort and resources into helping each person uh, on their own kind of journey
1: I think the advice that you share there for school leaders is is terrific. And you know what what I'm hearing you say is listen to understand, not listen to respond. Yeah. You know, um, and there's a real distinction there. And I really love how how you've you've complemented that then with how do I we then tap into the talent pool that already exists, and then how can I how can I resource it, you know, to enable it to thrive. Uh, I, I, th- I feel that that advice is inspired and I really appreciate you sharing that. I'm going to now hand it over to young Phil for the final question. Mm. I love it when someone calls
0: me young Phil. Deborah. It's, what's your next challenge?
2: What's my next challenge? Yeah. What are you going
0: to do next? What do you want to do more of?
2: Um, I mean, you talked before about, you know, can, can, school leaders be school leaders without being in the classroom where you made a comment earlier and certainly I mean you know I'm head of teaching and learning at the moment and I'm st- I'm in the classroom and for me uh, you know that's a really important kind of grounding anchor having you know at least one class of students that that you can be involved in so that's that's a kind of daily and energizing challenge I think for anyone who's in a school uh, I'm in a new role this year but and I thought perhaps that might mean that um, I wouldn't want to do so many things outside of my role Uh, but as it turns out perhaps that's not the case so um, I've got some cool collaborations going on in terms of uh, you know I'm an English literature teacher I love books Um, I've got some interesting ideas in terms of um, edited edited books and so on and um, just continuing to collaborate with others because for me I get some of my energy from those global collaborations, where I'm talking with, learning with, researching with, and writing with people from all over the world who are who are also interested in these things and bringing sort of their knowledge of of their context and their own research to to what I know. And so, um, probably there's a bit of that in my in my year as well.
0: It sounds to me as though you're actually modelling the competencies that we would want to be passing on to our students. And I can't think of uh, anything better that for for any of us to start our our, our approach to education with than leading by example that way. Um, Deborah St. Mark's uh, Anglican Community School is very, very lucky to have you in the middle of their community, helping them to guide uh, their learning and their thinking about uh, uh, the way in which learning should be moving forward. You bring such wisdom to what it is that you do. And, uh, and, and, you, and, and you just raise your eyebrows out there, which tells me that you don't take yourself too seriously as well too, which is just brilliant. Um, you know, you, you really do. You bring enormous wisdom. To you do, and your willingness to share with colleagues all, all around the world uh, uh, is really impressive. It's 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 exactly the sort of thing that uh, all the all of the game changers that we've been talking to um, uh, are, are so generous in their in their time and their, their willingness to connect. And, and we've really enjoyed the opportunity to talk with you today.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Deb. And we wish you well over there in, in sunny Perth. We're very jealous of your weather. And uh, that we don't get to have that necessarily here in Melbourne. And to all our listeners, I, I strongly urge you to follow Deb's blog uh, that Phil mentioned earlier. I, I often engage with it because it comes from a space of not only great academic research but a lived experience of humanity. And I've always found that the best practitioners are the ones who are great storytellers and and learn and reflect from each of those encounters. And there aren't many much better than you, Deb. And so thank you very much for your passion in this space and your willingness to continue to share so much of yourself and be vulnerable in sharing that with
0: all of us. You're an example that I aspire to be when I grow up in education.
2: (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) Adriana.
0: The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and supported by Circle, the Centre for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education. Go to www.circle.education. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you're hearing.